And since no power of hell or scheme of man can pluck you from his hand, therefore. Therefore, we will turn again and with great hope that we might make some progress, not only in finishing the chapter, but in becoming this kind of person, we will try again. And my plan, I really do believe this is now a more hopeful plan than I thought it was before the couple hours I had to work this afternoon, that we really will finish the chapter tonight, picking up the pace and I think we'll be able to do some service to chapter 13 tomorrow. I think probably the way I'll, I'll do it tomorrow is uh, tackle the, the units, the 8 to 10, very briefly about the law being fulfilled in love, and then tackle the last section there in verses 11 to the end about the hour has come, put off the works of darkness, very briefly, and then end our time reflecting on uh, submission to the government and all the implications that has for us, including implications concerning civil disobedience and such things. Because in my judgment, not only does our country have a very significant history in terms of civil disobedience, but the future is coming when life will not be as easy for us Christians as it is today. And we need to have a great deal of empathy for those who live in lands where to gather in obedience to Scripture is against the law. Should they or shouldn't they, in view of chapter 13, verses 1 following, wherever government is from the Lord and we are to submit. So that's the plan, and let's see how we can do in it. Oh, how I would love to linger more over the gifts in verses 3 to 8. I did not do them justice, but I really do believe that we would be better served leaving you to reflect there and moving on to verses 9 to the end of the chapter. Let love be genuine. The word genuine there is literally unhypocritical let love be unhypocritical isn't it interesting and probably very significant that just as in first corinthians 12 and 13 paul dealt with spiritual gifts chapter 12 and then the great love chapter Chapter 13, he follows the same pattern here. Spiritual gifts, verses 3 to 8. Now, like it says in chapter 13, or at the end of chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, Behold, I show you a more excellent way. And then, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Here... I have now taught you some, very briefly, he would say, concerning the spiritual gifts in verses 3 to 8. But now I want to emphasize and major on love. And really, 
all of these verses, nine to the end of the chapter, more or less are about mercy, which we expected from verse one and about love. So he begins with let love be unhypocritical, to which I want to respond. Um, what drives hypocrisy? Why would anybody want to do love hypocritically? Think, think about that for just a second. What drives hypocrisy? Well, first of all, what is it? Hypocrisy is uh, trying to appear on the outside something that you are not on the inside. Okay, Most of us would agree with that definition, I think. Jesus hated it. He talked about it a lot. Few things got him more riled up than the hypocrites. Whitewashed tombs, he called them. Like so squeaky clean on the outside and the inside full of dead men's bones. And so Paul is here saying, don't. Let your love be a show. But what drives that? And wouldn't you agree that what drives hypocrisy is pride? Namely, I want people to think I'm great, a great lover or, or a great pastor or a great something, and I'm not. On the inside, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to make it look good. Gonna put up the show when you're not loving inside. Don't have a pastor's heart inside. So then what would be the remedy? What I'm doing here is trying to forge a link with verses one and two and three. Trying to see all of this chapter flowing out of what he's done already and, and what we've seen in verses one and two is we need a transformation from the inside out, not just a new list, but a, a renewed mind. And then he fleshes it out in verse three with self-thinking. Do you think about yourself highly or do you think about yourself in terms of faith, with, which looks away from you to your treasure out there, not in here? That's the opposite of pride. Pride wants to stand in front of the mirror and feel really good about what it sees and then turn and have others look and give you strokes and applause. And pride is a second-hander religion. It's always getting its energy from other people's approval. Whereas the life of verse 3, the life of thinking highly about Christ And letting faith in him be the measure of who we are is the abolition of pride. Because pride vanishes when you are vanishing yourself and being caught up into Christ. A humble person, we were talking about this a little bit at the supper table tonight. A humble person is a grateful person and vice versa. If if you walk around seeing things in terms of, I don't deserve this, this is great, I'm so thankful, everybody will feel you're a humble person. Whereas if you never say thank you, it will look as though you take everything for granted that you deserve it. So I think 
Let love be without hypocrisy is one of the first things he says about love because he's driving against his pride issue all the way through these verses. We're going to see pride poke his head up here again and again in these verses. So the remedy for hypocritical love is verse 3. Namely, don't think highly of yourself, but rather think about yourself paradoxically in terms of the measure of faith that you have. That is, think of yourself by not thinking of yourself, but thinking highly of Christ. Your own value, your esteem, your significance is precisely in direct proportion to the significance Christ has in your life. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Isn't that an amazing thing to follow right after telling people to be genuine lovers? Love genuinely. Hate. Love genuinely. Abhor. That's the most remarkable juxtaposition. Full of significance. So let me unpack it for a minute. This is really big. What is implied in Paul saying, abhor what is evil, hold fast. These are big words. These aren't mild words. Abhor and hold fast are pushing the limits of language. He's not just saying dislike evil and like good. He's saying hate it. Hate it. And he's saying cleave to it, love it, embrace it. Christianity is not a willpower religion. It's a passion religion. If you're only a willpower person, ask God to change you so that the passion level rises. Otherwise, how are you going to obey this verse? Abhor and cleave. So here are some implications. Number one. There is such a thing as objective good and evil outside my preferences. You see that implication here? This needs to be said in our day because today good is defined as what you abhor. And I mean, evil is defined as what you abhor and good is defined as what you like. And here it's the other way around. Here, good and evil are out there. And you are to bring your emotions into conformity to that. If something is evil, hate it. If something is good, love it. Which means it's out there. Well, that is so simple. I mean, we, we who grew up with a biblical worldview say, duh. It's not a duh today. Good in this culture is what you affirm as good, like. And evil is what you disapprove of. You decide what's evil for you, I'll decide what's evil for me. And I just want to point out that a simple thing like this shows that in the biblical worldview, evil and good are objective, concrete realities outside of your preferences, and they exist whether you like it or don't like it. And, you know, you don't have to be a theologian to get this across to your kids the, the, the great thing about just reading the Bible every day with your children is that they absorb this. If they hear this 
Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. From the time they're two till they're 22, guess what? They're going to have a worldview that says there's good and evil. That's that's a, a great legacy to leave your kids. There's good and there's evil. That's not to be taken for granted with college students today. So just keep reading the Bible with your kids and don't worry too much about being a theologian. Just keep reading the Bible. They'll they'll pick it up. Implication number two, choosing against evil and for good is not enough. Inner intensity is required. Choosing is not enough. Inner intensity is required. I said that already about passion. That's implied in the words abhor and hold fast. Third implication, the Bible commands that our emotions be changed even though we don't have immediate control over them. There are commands all over the Bible that are addressed to your emotions. Hate, love, be grateful, be tenderhearted, be thankful. I wrote down about 12 different emotions that are commanded in the Bible. And you can't turn emotions on and off. So right now, if I held up something that you ought to abhor and you don't abhor it, you can't. Snap a finger and make yourself abhor it. But you're commanded to abhor it. The implication of that is you must be born again. And you desperately need the Holy Spirit to transform you from the inside out. And you'll be working on this till the day you die. Bringing your inner life emotionally into conformity with biblical reality as God sees it. None of us in this room does this perfectly, and we won't until Jesus finishes his work on us at the end. But we ought to be every day asking that we hate the hateful and that we delight in the delightful as God sees them so that we get our emotional life into biblical shape. And some of us grew up in homes where that was pretty much right, and some of us grew up in homes where we got it all wrong emotionally, and we need to have a a makeover, a total emotional makeover, and learn to hate new things and love new things. And you can't make yourself hate, and you can't make yourself love, but over time, as you contemplate the beauty of the beautiful and the ugliness of the ugly, asking the Holy Spirit to shape you according to the Word, you can get a whole new range of emotions. That's third implication. Fourth implication. Objective moral good is good for us and objective moral evil is bad for us. Now I see that in the juxtaposition of let love be genuine followed by abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. If we're supposed to love people, most people would agree loving people means uh, doing things and wanting things that are good for people. And now you're just told there is moral evil and there is moral good and you're supposed to hate the one and, and cleave to the other, evidently in the service of love. So now we know evil is bad for people and good is good for people. And there's a lot of people in the world who don't believe that. We were talking about the issue of homosexuality earlier. It's hard for many people who 
as far as they can see, owing to no choices they've made, are wired homosexually to believe that the command never to indulge that is good for them. And it is. It's good for them. And God willing, Christian people with that struggle will embrace that. Okay? I bow. It's hard to live with, but I bow to that. So the fourth implication is the objective good and the objective evil. The good is good for us and the evil is bad for us, whether it looks like it is or not. And and the last implication to draw out is genuine love must hate. Genuine love must hate. You can see it. Let love be genuine. Abhor. In a world where there is only good, that would not be true. Love would not have to hate if there was only good and nobody was being destroyed by evil. But where people are being hurt by evil, love must hate evil or it doesn't love people. You see the connection? You you can't be a, a mealy-mouthed, touchy-feely, merciful person who has no hate in this world. If you don't hate, you don't love. There are things in this world that are destroying human beings. Destroying them morally, destroying marriages, destroying their souls, destroying their bodies, destroying their eternity. If you don't hate those things, you don't love those people. That's the implication here. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Just briefly with verse 10, notice that what we're called upon to feel in the church is brotherly affection, not just strong resolves to treat each other nicely. And here again, as all through these verses, we're demanded to do something beyond our immediate capacity. If you don't like a Christian in your church... Can you make yourself like the Christian? Can you make yourself feel brotherly affection for this ornery Christian? And the answer is you can't make yourself. You can't screw up your courage. You can't grit your teeth and clench your fists and say, I've got to like this person. I've got to have brotherly affection for this person. And that's exactly what we're commanded to have. I test myself with this because I just wrote a 275-page book critiquing a brother in Christ. Because I think he's got a, a very defective and harmful view of justification. So I've been checking myself along the way. Is there something akin to brotherly affection as I write 275 pages to show he's wrong and hurtful to the church. Not easy. Not easy. 
So again, we're cast upon verse 2. Don't be conformed to the world. The world doesn't give a rip whether they like people that are unlikable. The world doesn't give a rip whether they have brotherly affection towards ordinary people. Let them go to hell. They're not in my life. I don't want to bother with them. I just won't join that club. Christians don't have the option. We're thrown together in the body of Christ with other believers that are really hard to get along with. And we're commanded, do not be conformed to the world's way of relating. Be transformed in the renewing of your mind with a profound humility that is oriented on the mercies of Christ who died for that person and died for you and put you together in one body with a common reconciliation, with a common blood, and pray over that and think over that until there rises in your heart a measure of brotherly affection. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to set the bar too high here. Brotherly affection. And it is an emotional word, not just a willpower word. Brotherly affection can look different than niceness. I have four sons. And to raise four boys is to raise violence. (laughs) I wish I'd had a daughter earlier. She would have mellowed everybody, I think. But these boys were... I mean, we we were on a first name basis at the emergency room (laughs) because of stitches. I mean, hundreds of stitches, belt buckle stitches and broom handle stitches. And (laughs) I love boys. And they could look like they didn't like each other at all. But you let them. Get a common enemy. (laughs) I was watching Bonanza the other night. (laughs) My little girl is so media deprived, she thinks it's cool. (laughs) And so do I, because I loved it when it was on at 9 o'clock Sunday night. And a guy had a gun on little Joe. And Hoss was standing about three feet behind little Joe. And he, he lifted up the gun at, at, and, and he said to Hoss, you make one step, I'll blow his guts out. And Hoss said, mister, if you do anything to that boy, all the bullets in that gun won't keep me from squeezing the life out of you. And the look on little Joe's face was just. And everything in me as a dad said, yes. So all I'm doing is painting a picture for you that the relationships may not always look easy, comfortable. Man, you go to a business meeting, you think a person's got a wacko idea, you know, spend this money that way. No way. That's a stupid idea. And you go, But when it's over, you and I, we're going to the same home. We've got the same Savior. I'll lay my life down for you. Something like that has got to be there. And we we should not settle until it's there in our hearts. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
What does that mean? I think it means love. Well, first of all, what does show honor mean? And I think show honor means, because there are a lot of people who are not very honorable. In fact, none of us ultimately is honorable. We deserve condemnation. So how do you honor somebody? And the answer, I think, is you you serve somebody as though they deserve being served. They might not deserve it, but you're going to serve them. You're going to count their needs greater than your own. So you serve them. You honor somebody by serving them. Treat them with words and deeds as worthy of your service. That's what Christ did when he died. We weren't worthy, but he served us that way. Now, how do you outdo somebody in showing honor? And I think the answer is you desire to serve more than you desire to be served. You outdo them in the sense that you want to, in this relationship, be a servant more than you want to be served. You want to show them as being worthy of this service more than you want to be shown worthy of their service. You won't reject their service. That's a hidden pride to reject somebody's favors and kindness to you. But the goal here, and this is so beautiful in marriage, and when I'm doing premarital counseling, one of the things I like to say is there's one really good kind of competition. Outdo one another in showing honor. Compete with who can give the most, who can lay down their life the most, who can serve the most. So humility, again, is the key here, isn't it, to that honoring verse 11 do not be slothful in zeal be fervent in spirit serve the lord now those first two elements don't be slothful in zeal be fervent in spirit could seem in some tension with each other if if you saw in the first one don't be slothful in zeal that is Don't be lazy, be a doer, be a hard worker, zealously, be pragmatic with zeal. Then you might look at the next one and say, be fervent in spirit. And you think, well, there's another kind of person here. Fervent in spirit isn't the pragmatist, he's the poet. He's just all kinds of emotions that are ready to praise and... He leaves his room a mess. He, he doesn't practically do much helpful around here. But he sure brings a lot of energy to the worship service. And then the, the pragmatist, generally, on these two kind of paradigms, the pragmatist person, work hard, you know, get it done. If I was in Minnesota, I'd say good Scandinavian, unemotional, non-passionate, Work for Jesus. And frankly, there's plenty of volunteers for the nursery, but the worship service is a drag. (laughs) Onward, Christian soldiers. Work, work, work. But feel, feel, feel. That's dangerous. Now, I think what, what we should do then 
with a verse like this. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Is see that Paul simply will not let either of us be content where we are. He's going to say to the pragmatist, I like your pragmatism. I like hard work. Sloth is not a virtue in the Christian church. So good for you. However, I got a word for you. Namely, be fervent in spirit. The, the word, you know, the English word fervent comes from the Latin fervens, which means boil. And this Greek word means boil. That's a real interesting etymological connection over into English. Boil in the spirit. You can imagine this pragmatist who doesn't ever feel anything saying, you want me to boil? <laughs> yes, I want you to boil. Or take the boiler over here and say, you know what? When you go to the post office at at the school and the kids are all lining up to get in there and get at their little post offices, you need to not read your mail while you're standing at the post box. Just be think of practical ways to be nice. Don't be so oblivious reading your love letter in front of your post box, 18 people trying to get at their mailboxes here, and you're so impractical, you're not loving people. So stop using your boiling worship orientation to be so practically unkind. I just think the Bible gets at you no matter where you are. It just won't let us be content with our Piper personality or... Your personality. He's going to say, okay, Piper, you've got a personality. I'll use it, but you've got some work to do. Got some edges to knock off here. And don't think that that you are this way is okay by itself. Keep growing. Keep growing. You're 61. i got work to do on you. Serve the Lord. Now, what, what that phrase adds is a focus to the first two. Right. Don't be slothful in zeal. So go ahead and not be lazy and be a hard worker, zealously doing practical good things and be fervent in spirit. Be a good boiler and make it all in the service of the Lord. So it's not just he's not just appealing for appealing for personality types here. He's after a certain kind of service to Jesus. Now, question is, what? What does it mean to serve the Lord? And there are some interesting um, ways of getting at this in Romans and other other books that Paul has written. Let me give you an example or two of what serving Jesus is. Romans sixteen seventeen. I appeal to you, brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. Now, these instances, I'm going to give you all of them, contrast with serving Jesus and not serving something else. And the first one is not serving your appetites. So when you contrast serve Jesus, not your appetites, you have to ask, what does it mean to serve an appetite? And isn't the answer, 
you serve an appetite when you give into it and make it your satisfaction. So I serve my appetite not by providing help to my appetite, but by caving in to my appetite and going ahead and indulging my appetite. Strange kind of service. And he says, you ought to be serving Jesus, not your appetite, which means that serving Jesus would be caving in to Jesus, giving in to Jesus, indulging in Jesus, being satisfied with Jesus, enjoying Jesus, glutting yourself on Jesus. Surprising definitions of service show up. Here's another one. This one is Galatians 5.13. No, Ephesians 6.6, sorry. Not by way of eye service, he's telling servants how to relate to their masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So there, serving Christ is contrasted with pleasing people. So be more interested in the approval of Christ than the approval of man. Don't be a people pleaser. Be a Jesus pleaser. And then Romans 7, 6 But now we are released from the law, having died to what held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the spirit. So serving Christ is not serving the law. It's serving Jesus. And I think that means come to Jesus first as a law fulfiller, not a law demander. Otherwise, the therefore at the beginning of chapter 12, will not work. So the focus of our pragmatism and the focus of our boiling spirits is in being satisfied with Jesus, finding Jesus as who's the one whose approval means the most to us, and finding Jesus as our all-sufficient law fulfiller as well as Romans 12 giver. I know how much more could be said about the serving of the Lord because he really is the one who finally serves us. I will not venture to speak of anything Paul said in chapter 15 except what Christ has worked in me to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. I won't venture to speak of anything except what Christ has worked in me. So all of his service of Christ is Christ's service to him. This is why serving Jesus can never be thought of in terms of paying Jesus back for anything because all of your efforts to serve him are a result of his enabling your service. So every step of service you take, you're going deeper in debt to his serving you. You're not paying him back. You're going deeper in debt. Every step you take, he enabled you to take it. So another word of gratitude has to be paid. You, you never can pay Jesus back by serving him. His service is always 
what is enabling your serving of him. First Corinthians 15:10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain, but I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So all my work for Jesus is Jesus' work for me. And my work for him can never pay him back, but only take me deeper in debt to grace. I am very, very happy that eternity will be a never-ending spiral into greater debt to grace. Every moment that I survive in eternity will be another gift of grace that I did not deserve. And my gratitude, therefore, for all eternity will have to grow. And there will be never any thought of finally evening the deal. He did for me. I did for him. Even Stephen. Never. Romans twelve twelve. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in in prayer. Now reflect on those words. Rejoice. Hope. Patience. Tribulation. Constancy. Prayer. One of them sticks out. You know, if you do those little puzzles and you're given four or three or five things, they, which one doesn't belong? Which one of these doesn't belong? Tribulation is unique because all the others are things we do. We rejoice, we hope, we're patient, we're constant, we pray. Tribulation is done to us. Now, the reason I just draw that out is to set, up, set this up because I think Tribulation in this little unit here forms the backdrop of everything else. It's not it's not one of the number. It's the backdrop against which everything here happens. Do you remember what theology 101 was in Acts 14? Paul plants these churches, Lystra, Derby, Iconium. First trip, he turns around and comes back just probably a few weeks later, maybe months. We don't know exactly. And he's teaching them in every church. What? Chapter 14, verse 22. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom. He said it in every single church. This is basic discipleship. If you lead somebody to Christ tonight, I'll tell you what you should tell them tomorrow morning. Through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom. Count on it. This afternoon, things are going to go bad for you. If you don't start your discipleship program that way, you're setting them up for a big misunderstanding of the nature of Christianity. The backdrop of our lives is pain. Tribulation is generally a reference to the way people treat us. However, the word simply means pressure, oppression, and that can come from cancer as well as catastrophes, as well as enemies. And in principle, the pain that comes into your life comes for the same design from Satan and the same design from God, whether it's from people or from nature. Satan's design is destroy your faith. God's design is build your faith, refine your faith, make your gold shine. And Satan is destroy your gold. Doesn't matter whether men are causing the pain, 
Hurricanes causing the pain. Disease is causing the pain. Kids are causing the pain. Wife is causing the pain. I'm causing the pain. It doesn't matter where the pain's coming from. Satan's got a design. God's got a design. They're opposites. So tribulation, oppression, difficulty, pain, trouble is the backdrop of the Christian life. If you don't have any, you will. (laughs) So just to put it gently, you will. Because the Bible says those who like to give, want to live a godly life will be persecuted. Now, against that backdrop, let's weave the other pieces in. Rejoice in hope. Now, that makes sense against that backdrop, right? Because, frankly, right now, what's happened to me does not feel real happy. But I'm supposed to rejoice. Always. And again, I say rejoice. How? Hope. We Christians know that we've been rescued for everlasting joy. We groan waiting the redemption of our um, the adoption of our, and the redemption of our bodies, our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We wait, wait, wait and groan. So the future, future grace is where our hope is fixed. And that hope streams back into the present and gives us present joy now in the midst of this very tribulation. In fact, if you remember chapter five, he makes it even more radical. Remember what he says? Not only that, but we rejoice in tribulation for tribulation works patience and patience works approvedness and approvedness works hope and hope does not put us to shame. So even the tribulation itself is working in us that which makes our hope more sure. So you don't just put hope over against tribulation as something that you now rejoice in in spite of, but actually because of the tribulation. Tribulation is working patience. Patience is working approvedness, a sense of metal being tested. And that is confirming your hope, and hope is letting joy stream back into your life. Then, born out of that joy in hope through tribulation, you get this word, patience. How are you going to hang in there forever? we got a whole conference coming in September up in Minneapolis. With John MacArthur coming and Jared Bridges coming and Helen Rosevere in her early 80s coming. Who was a missionary in Congo and was raped and endured so much and has held firm and and uh, Randy Alcorn, who lost his job, had to get up his ministry because he was sued by so many abortion clinics. He had to go on minimum wage, which he is on to this very day. And the reason I'm assembling all these folks to come talk about standing is because I just fear for our generation, our younger generation, constancy, sticking in there, doing the hard thing. Staying in your marriage, staying in your promises, staying in your contracts, keeping your word, finishing the job, keeping your hand on the plow is not a high virtue. Moving, shifting, change, diversity, newness. That's the name of the game. Just have five different jobs in your life. Moving up the ladder. Change is always possible. Moving, 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 even among marriages. And I just want constancy. 
to be elevated as a, a virtue. And I just thought, if I bring in all these old people, <laughs> they're all old. Gene Randy Alcorn's not so old, but he's the youngest. And the rest of us are 60, 67, 83, uh, whatever. Thank you. Um, that maybe I could get together a few thousand folks and they would look and say, wow, they did it. They stood. MacArthur, 40 years, one place, doing the same thing over and over. How do you do that? And have life. I was with him just a few months ago up at Southern Seminary, sitting in a basement, and just looked into his eyes and said, I'm more excited about what I do today than I ever have been. And he's just with a group of four people. He's not impressing any crowd by saying that. He's just saying it because it's true. He's and that's the way I feel. I, I'm on vacation a little bit after this. I want to go home and I just want to do it again. I want to be there for Bethlehem. I want to preach. I want to be strong to the end. And that's what I see here in this word. Patient. Patient. Enduring in tribulation. So it comes from hope, which streams into joy, which streams into patience. And now the last phrase, which serves it, is constant in prayer. Where does hope, which gives rise to joy, which gives rise to patience, come from? It comes from God. Look at Turn to Ephesians 1 with me for a minute. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. A prayer... This is prayer now. I'm illustrating constant in prayer. What do you pray constantly? Chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 15. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, I did not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that. Here's what he prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. You need to know him better. I'm going to pray that you know him better and that your spirit know him better. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know three things. The hope to which you've been called. The riches of your inheritance, your glorious inheritance. And the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So when you pray for yourself, you pray that. Oh God, grant that I would have a spirit of wisdom, that the eyes of my heart would be so illumined that I would see my hope that was bought for me by Jesus so clearly and my inheritance so clearly that there would be so much joy flowing back into my life that endurance would rise so strong that I would face my tribulations undaunted. That's the way we ought to pray. Open my eyes to see my hope, because frankly, our buckets leak. We fill them up in the morning with hope and they leak. And you got to go back to the Bible over and over again. You got to go back to prayer over and over again and plead. Isn't this strange? Like a child sitting in front of a chocolate Sunday pleading, oh, Lord, help me enjoy it. Just eat it. And yet we are so sinful that we sit with glory in front of us 
and feel almost nothing. You get up in the morning. Do you feel boiling in the spirit? No. Not unless you're unusually spirit-filled. I don't get up that way. I have to fight my way against my flesh, against the devil, against the word, with the sword of the spirit, pleading. And I, I, I am so thankful for Ephesians 1 that Paul felt he had to pray this way. He's praying for Christians that the eyes of their heart would behold their hope. <laughs> what else would we behold? We're Christians. And yet, we don't see it. We see our new computer. Our new Mac is sitting on the desk beckoning with greater attractiveness than Romans. I just got one. I'm a Mac. You're a PC. I'm a Mac. I was a PC for 25 years. And frankly, new gadgets have power over me. It's weird. I mean, you think I'm a preacher of the gospel. I'm a sap when it comes to gadgets. I want to pull my gadget out, find a new thing in here. There's stuff in here that I don't even know about. (laughs) Well, I hope you're not like that, but if, if you are, join the... The war, because it is very serious. Little things can destroy our hope. We become fools trading the glory of God for images of gadgets. That's verse. What verse is that? 11, 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Let's deal with this one very briefly. In America, we're a very wealthy nation. Compared to the rest of the world, we're all rich. And we should be givers. And we should be hospitable. That is, our our homes should be open to strangers. Not only to eat with us, but to sleep on the floor of the den if they need a home. And the reason that had to be commanded is because it's dangerous. You do that in Vietnam, they may be a spy. They may look poor, they may be a spy. Checking to see if you're a Christian. So it was in the Roman world. The practice of hospitality was seditious. It was dangerous. It, it was like an underground railroad. It, you, you walk into a town in the first three centuries, you've got to find out where the Christians are. It's dangerous to be a Christian for 300 years in the beginning. How do you find them? Networks, talking. When you're there, will they take you in? They should take you in. You see, it's, it's like that. You live in the city like I do, all kinds of needs around you. Meeting them often feels risky. So we're wealthy. We, most of us have houses or apartments that are 
palatial compared to the rest of the world. And just a word to this age group. I mean, 50 plus. Um, trillions of dollars are coming into our hands. You know this? Because our parents are dying. And they're leaving us stuff. You've already made your bundle, right? You're successful in your career. Got your house. It's paid for. Got your car. Two of them, maybe. Maybe another house. You're as rich as can be. Bank account. All kinds of investment portfolios. All kinds of insurance policies. This room. If you took all the collected wealth in this room right now, it would be millions and millions and millions of dollars. I do not doubt. If this room got serious about collectively doing something crazy for God, we could build churches all over the place with just the money that's in our power right here. And you add to that, our moms and dads are dying and leaving us stuff. So my dad just died. His insurance policy was enough to pay for the funeral and pay off most of his debts. He had some stock. I don't know how much. He's not a millionaire, I'm sure. But my sister and I are going to get something, you know, after the eight months. And I don't know what I'm going to get. I've never asked. My brother-in-law's handling the whole thing. And I'm scared. Maybe $20,000, maybe $100,000. I don't know what it is. That's happening by the millions across this land right now. We baby boomers are managing trillions of dollars right now. And I'm just mentioning it because... Not because you should run away from it, but because you should just resolve right now. I'm not going to change my lifestyle to one big, fat, wasted life. I'm going to just be the greatest giver I can possibly be. I'm going to dream a dream. I'm going to make these last days. I'm going to die like Wesley with a silver spoon in my top drawer. (laughs) Believe me, I do not want to leave a big financial legacy to my five kids. I think that's dangerous to make your kids wealthy when you die. Our our parents didn't think that one through. They should design where that money goes and it shouldn't all go into their kids' hands. Terrible temptations come to a 61-year-old if he's made wealthy when he needs nothing. My house is paid for. My car is paid for. I have a little bit of debt left where I helped Abraham finish school. I don't need anything from my father. Nothing. I'm wealthy. My church pays me plenty. More than I want. And they're on my case because I don't get paid enough because it's depressing the other salaries. (laughs) So that's going to have to be adjusted. And they say, I'm going to trust you to handle it well. All right. This is so dangerous. Money in the mind of Jesus is so much more dangerous than sex. He talked about money over and over and over again. We read it for devotions yesterday morning. Or was it this morning? I can't remember. I think it was this morning. And anyway, it was in Luke 12, and it's the barn builder. Soul, say you have much wealth laid up for you. Eat, drink, and be merry. And the Lord says to him, fool. This very night, your soul will be required of you. And then, whose will these things be? 
And then he ends with this amazing verse. So it will be with those who lay up treasures on earth and are not rich toward God. What does that mean? Rich toward God. God doesn't need anything. I think rich Godwardly, rich toward God means God is my riches. So it will be, fool will be spoken over the life of all of us baby boomers who pile it up and pile it up and pile it up and then die. Fool. Laying up treasures on earth and not rich with God, not taking God as your treasure. The way to make God your treasure is to so live with your money as to show that he's more valuable than your money. And the best way to do that is to give it away. And so just I'm preaching to myself here. I'm preaching to myself. I got some work to do in my heart and in my mind between now and December 31st. When whatever this is, is released, it comes from my dad. I don't know what it's going to be. I got some work to do right here. What am I going to do? Buy, 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 buy. Ten things I want to buy and don't need. Or am I going to dream about some missions and dream about some ministries and dream about some people who could use some help and so on. Enough maybe on that Verse, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. Bless those who bless you. I mean, who curse you. Get my notes here. (laughs) Yeah, don't just bless those who bless you. How are we doing? Oops, our time is up. Shoot. (laughs) Oh, I had three more units to go. Okay. Let me, I'm going to take, I'm going to take five more minutes. Yeah, these told, but you will not leave out a song. You will not leave out a song. I told, they said, we want to leave out a song so you can go longer. No, no, no. I'll take you one more unit. Or, yeah. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, Maybe the last thing I should say this evening is to simply ask the question and then draw out the answer. What do those two verses have to do with each other? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So this is mercy, right? This is mercy. Be disposed towards your persecutors the way God was disposed towards you. And he doesn't just say, treat them well while you hate them inside. He says, bless them. You know what a blessing is? It's wanting that things go well for them and speaking that blessing over them. Wanting that our enemies prosper. What does that have to do with Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
Why wouldn't you? This is my this is a way of getting at the answer. Why wouldn't you rejoice with somebody who's rejoicing? Can you think of some situations where you wouldn't want to do that? And one would be you don't like them. And you're mad that they're happy. Which is exactly the same issue as verse 14, isn't it? In other words, to be the kind of person that rejoices with the rejoicer, you have to be glad that they're happy, even if they're your enemy. And to be the kind of person who weeps with those who weep, you have to be sad that things aren't going well for them. What an amazing person that is. When he, when he sees pain, he feels pain. When he sees gladness, he feels gladness. He doesn't feel resentful. There are people who get upset when others are happy. They're just full of themselves. They're just full of themselves. They want to put a damper on everything because they're not at the center of it. And so I I see the same issues behind both verses. Being the kind of merciful person who has the other person's good on your heart. Yes, he's against you. Yes, he's cursing you. You wish it weren't so. It hurts. There are tears. But your heart towards him is, I wish he would turn around. I wish it would go well for him. I hope he doesn't go to hell. I hope he will change. I hope good things come into his life and direct him to God. Or if necessary, hard things come in and direct him to God. I have his good on my heart. And that's the same kind of person you have in verse 15. Only there, they're not cursing you. They're just rejoicing. How will you feel about that? I'll rejoice with them because I'm on their side. This is such an other-oriented person. And it all goes back to verses 1 and 2 and 3 where we're enamored by the merciful Christ, not with ourselves, and thus liberated to be there for other people, even our enemies. So we'll wrap that up uh, briefly tomorrow and then plow into chapter 13. Let me pray, and then we're going to worship together. Father in heaven, I'm so glad that we can linger in your presence for a little bit right now and say with song, both heard and sung, say good things about you. You are so worthy of our worship, so worthy of our being merciful people towards others to show them what kind of God we have. So come and be on this time now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.